0: Unfolding grace. 1,044 Sundays ago, 20 complete years of Sundays ago, I stood up in front of a very tiny congregation and said, Welcome to the first worship gathering of Grace and Peace Church. And we eventually changed our name to New City Church, and here we are. And as I'm looking around this room, there was, besides myself, there was one person here that was in that worship gathering, and that is my daughter Elizabeth, who was a much younger and smaller version of herself. Um, and in the f- it wasn't many people. In fact, probably this section over here was bigger than that initial gathering. And then, you know, you put together the first service. And this I mean, we've, you know, we're not a huge church, but we've grown. And that's like, so encouraging, probably, I don't know, around, Two hundred seventy to three hundred people, if you put everybody in one spot, and uh, that's not huge by megachurch standards, but it's so encouraging because our intention from day one, and I think we can say, I think we can say, generally imperfectly, but really we've lived that out, is to be a church that is built on the Word of God and the work of the Spirit, the the Word and the Spirit. Now we live in a kind of a Christian culture that. For the la- You know, since the late 80s or early 80s or late 70s, we've said, look, you know, businesses are great, and we affirm businesses, so let's just bring all those, like, business-oriented things into the church and do this and do that and do this and do that, and uh, I want to f- affirm business totally, and as a pastor, it's really hard to keep saying things like, look, that's a great idea, and yet the Word does the work. The word and the spirit do the work, and I've heard have so many great ideas over the years, right, from people like hundreds, thousands of great ideas. Have you thought about this? Why don't you do this? What about this? How about do this? Do this, and we want to say that's a great idea for your business. And in the church, the word does the work, working through the spirit. And I think we can say that we have been committed to that, and the word has done its work in sort of building us slowly, brick by brick. Building a people who love each other uh, imperfectly, but, but really, and we try to do that. The Word does its work in the pulpit, in community groups, in small conversations, in studies. The Word just keeps doing the work as it builds our love for each other, as it builds our love for those who would journey with us, that become connected to us. We call that outreach. I bring people to the community. We try to love and walk with them imperfectly, but the Word shapes us to be the kind of people who do that. And by many accounts, we are not impressive other than that. That doesn't make us impressive. But we're not impressive, right? We've never been an impressive church. Also, we never sought to be an impressive church. And if we do, you should fire me. And you should probably fire your elders and start over. Being impressive uh, its not what we're called to. We're called to be a people in whom the word of God takes shape, who are shaped by the word of God and seek to walk by the spirit of God. And I think we can say we have sought that for 20 years. And after 20 years, I think we can say we we need to ask for one more thing. In addition to the Word and the Spirit, here's what we need to ask for. More. More of the Word and Spirit. (laughs) Why? Because the Word does the work in God's people through His Spirit. That's, so if you, are part, if you are part of New City or you're newer to New City and you're like, I wonder if in the future it's going to be different than the Word doing the work through the Spirit. No, just I want to save you time. If that's what you want... Go somewhere else, right? I <laughs> What The Word does the work, and we don't do that perfectly, but we want to keep pushing into to the perfection of that reality. And we've try, been trying to do that for 20 years, and some of you have been here for all 20 years, not many, and all of you have else wrapped yourself into that story, and it's good, and thank you. And though we're not impressive, the Lord has brought us several magnificent people who live well and love well. So this is an introduction to a sermon just saying thank you for being part of that. Thank you for being part of that. Now let's ask for more, just more, more of what God has been doing, deeper what God has been doing. Today we're seeing a text where God says, that's a great great request to ask of me because that's the kind of God I am. I keep bringing life into situations. If you remember a couple years ago, maybe we gave a pop quiz to everybody in the worship gathering. Anybody remember that? remember that? It's traumatic, I know. I probably received no more, that's probably the most negative feedback I've ever received for anything than giving a pop quiz that was anonymous. Nobody put their name on it. Taylor was very clear in the instructions. Do not put your name on it. Nobody will know, just you and the Lord. And I cannot tell you how many people said, don't ever do that again. Fine, fine. I was telling somebody that story this week and they said, are we having another quiz this week? And I said, yes. But it's only one question, it's the end and you don't have to turn anything in. Um, In that quiz, it came to our attention that maybe we should spend a little bit more time in the storyline of the Old Testament, and so we eventually addressed that, and over the last year, we preached 33 sermons in the Old Testament, just covering the the grand narrative arc of the Old Testament. This is the 33rd and final sermon in that series, and we'll come back to the Old Testament in the future, of course. Next week, we're beginning a series on the book of Revelation, but we, we... Trace the the historical arc starting in Genesis 1 all the way through to the return from exile. And the last couple weeks we've been stepping back and saying, what what did God give the prophets to say to the people to enhance their imaginations and give them a vision when they were weakened? And we looked from Isaiah a couple times. Last week Taylor took us through Jeremiah 31, what's called the new or renewed covenant to the people who broke the covenant ripped it up, trampled on it, smashed it on the ground, and turned away from it, and God said, yet I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to renew the covenant I first made with your fathers. I'm going to pursue you because that's the kind of God I am. That was Jeremiah. This week we're looking at the the prophet Ezekiel who prophets to prophesized at about the same time as Jeremiah did. The northern kingdom has been wiped away by Assyria. That was 130 years before and now the southern kingdom has been carried off in three different times by the nation of Babylon and they're just dispersed everywhere. It's just a broken down situation and then Ezekiel comes on the scene and in Ezekiel 34 God tells him to say that there's going to be a he's going to raise up a shepherd like David but better. A good shepherd and your New Testament ears just think, wait, didn't Jesus say he was the good shepherd in John 10? Ding, ding, ding. That is correct. Right? And then in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to give the people of Israel a new heart and a new spirit. These grand pictures of future blessing. But the natural question that would get begged from the people of Israel is, how in the world is it going to happen? Because we are totally weakened. Most of our people are dead or dispersed, and we have no resources. We have no leadership. Uh, they would strategically remove the people that were that had potential and send them away. And like we have nothing in us. We are completely weakened. How in the world can any of these promises come about? We ourselves are broken down. Ezekiel 37 is God a prophecy given. Uh, by Ezekiel to the people, based on a vision he received from the Lord, which communicates this. Israel, you are absolutely correct. you got no hope and no future. But you have a God who is outside of you, who has not given up his promise to you. And this is a kind of God who brings life from death and into death brings life. That is what Ezekiel 37 is about. So I'm going to invite Dan Flayhive to come and read Ezekiel 37 for us and invite
1: you to stand to hear the reading of God's word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said to me, son of man, These are the bones of the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of God.
0: Let me pray, and then we'll look at Ezekiel 37. Lord, help us now by your spirit, your life-giving spirit. If we were indwelt by him, I would ask for the power of opening eyes further to what we have not seen about ourselves or in your word, and to do that in spite of the the communicator of it, the communication of it, and the receivers of it. Uh, But this is what you do. You make hazy things clear, so do that. Pray for any who are here today who do not yet know you, that their eyes and hearts will be open to your life-giving power for the first time and receive that new life that comes from outside into them. In Christ's name, amen. The answer to the question the Israel had, like, how in the world can this happen, is God saying, I'm the kind of God who does this stuff. I bring life into death and dead situations. What we see in this passage is that the Lord Himself brings life from death by His Spirit working through His Word. And let's just look at Ezekiel 37. Again, it begins in verse 1, "...the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out into the, in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones." And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now, this might be one of the most well-known passages in the book of Ezekiel. If you've heard sermons on the book of Ezekiel, it's probably this one or none, because Ezekiel's a little bit weird, and no preacher really wants to touch it, right? Uh, but this is one of the well-known passages, but for a reason. It's had staying power in both in, in Israel and in the Christian church for all these, all these centuries. This was a place apparently known to Ezekiel, the valley, probably somewhere in his homeland. He's like, oh, I know this place. And it is a picture of a valley strewn with bones. And there's a ton of live body detail in here, right? God's not saying, Ezekiel, I want you to picture in your mind. No, he gives him a vision. He takes him there. He's like, look at all this. and Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. And Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's like, there were very many. It's a Hebrew idiom for surprise. I can't believe how many there were. It's like an overwhelming amount of bones. It's kind of like some scene from The Lord of the Rings where, you know, in some cave you got thousands of skulls coming toward Aragorn, right? And it's like very many bones. That's all Ezekiel's saying. And they are dry and sun bleached, very dry. All the rest of the bodies that used to be on these bones long ago has been picked over by animals, or in the dry desert has just rotted away. There's nothing left but bones. So, I think the, the picture in mind should be some old archaeological dig that's already been surfaced, but like you know, times a thousand bones just everywhere, everywhere. Now, the significance of this for the first hearers would be this is obviously an army or a people that did not receive a proper burial. That's important in the Old Testament, especially in in the the Israelite religion. There's a portion of the Old Testament committed to it. Uh, Having proper burial was an important reality. What's also helpful to know is that this would have been a sign of judgment all through the, the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East. Leaving people unburied was a sign of judgment and particularly, not to get too nerdy, but just hang on for a second, a sign of a nation that had broken a covenant with another nation. Assyria did this to the nations they made partnerships with. It would be a weaker nation that was made, made a covenant or a treaty with Assyria, and then they would... Uh, this smaller nation would like, well, let's partner up with somebody else like Egypt. It would go poorly because Assyria was more strong. They would sweep in. They would slaughter everybody and just leave them on an open field because it was a sign of judgment, particularly judgment of breaking a covenant or breaking a treaty. So this is all in the background of the hearers of this. Ezekiel would have known this. Uh, and And we're told later in this passage that this valley of bones represents the whole house of Israel who had, as Taylor said, taught us last week, broke the covenant with the Lord. In spite of the fact that he'd been their creator, in spite of the fact that he'd given his name to them, in spite of the fact that he'd drawn them out of slavery and provided for them in the wilderness and brought them into the promised land and was faithful to them over and over and over and over again, they broke the covenant and there was destruction that happened because of that. Verse 3. So this is the picture of Israel just dead. Verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh Lord God, you know. So, Son of man here is a title for Ezekiel, probably emphasizing his humanity, meaning, yes, he's made in the image of God, but he's also limited. And God asked him this question Can these bones live? Ezekiel's a prophet, and he knows the Lord, and he, it seems like he's saying, is this a trick question? Uh, we're not. So in, in Judaism, there was a sense of life after death. We're not sure when it crystallized as a form that we know in the New Testament of like a clear vision. So God can raise from the dead, but it looks like what Ezekiel does is he kicks it back to the Lord. They say, Lord, what do you think? I'm not going to answer this question. I feel like this is a trap. You're asking me, like, oh, Lord, you know. I think that's what's happening here. Now, as New Testament readers of this, we cannot not read this with also knowing, oh, one day God will take on flesh and step into this earth as Jesus, live, be crucified, and then he will be resurrected. Resurrected. And if we have faith in him, we are united to him by faith in that resurrection so that at one day in the future, our physical resurrection, as Jesus' was, will happen. So if you're in Christ by faith right now, the truth is you spiritually are resurrected with Christ. We'll read that in a second. So we And we taste of that power of that future resurrection. Now, we just taste of it a little bit by the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's a fullness coming. So we know all that. And so we're reading back, you know, this, this passage of dry bones coming to life. We, we know that. And so we have to, you know, you kind of read the Old Testament from two directions. You're reading from the, how they would hear, but you're also reading like what we know. So it's got to come together in some way. In both of those cases, for us and for Israel, what we see is that the Lord brings life first by showing death, by showing how bad the situation is. He Well, not always, but he often will do that in our life before he brings life into our life. So again, he takes Ezekiel into the valley. Let me give you a tour of this valley and see up close how dry and how dusty and how very many they are, right? These are not sick people. These are not, you know, corpses that just fell because they lost a battle. These are dead, dead people. They're all the way dead. Not, in the words of Miracle Max, and the Princess Bride, mostly dead people. <laughs> Princess Bride fans, good. Wesley has been tortured by Humperdinck in the Zoo of Death, I think that's what it's called. I can't remember. Okay, I got, I got a nod. And he's dead, and he's brought to Ma- Miracle Max. And Miracle Max says, oh, he's not, he's not dead. He's mostly dead. And it's different. There's a difference between being mostly dead and all dead, being mostly alive. Uh, being mostly dead There's slightly alive. Being mostly dead is slightly alive. There's a little bit of life left in him, right? And when there's mo- they're mostly dead, there's only one thing you can do. Go through their pockets and look for loose change, is what he says. But uh, what Ezekiel is showing is being shown by the Lord, and I think what the Spirit shows us in our own sin is this we are not mostly dead. In ourselves and apart from Christ, we are dead, dead, unable to respond. This was a spiritual commentary on the house of Israel, they were separated. They were cut off from the covenant. They were very dead. Why does the Lord do this? I don't know for certain. I know in part that he shows us the depth of the deadness, in part, to break down any illusions we may have that would lead us to believe that Grace or life or spiritual power comes from within us independent from him. He he shows us the depth of the deadness to break any illusions we have that we can exist independently apart from him, that grace originates with us. And this is painful sometimes. I totally know this. I know this. But it's actually a grace if he does this in our life. Why? Why? Because we are built, we are created to be dependent on him. And anything that shows us the depth of our inclination to be independent is a grace that's to us. And I'm not saying it's always a corrective grace, like, oh, this person's doing it wrong, and God's going to show Sometimes it's a, it's a training grace. It's a training grace to prepare us for the, the bentness of our own heart, which is true of all of us, that may incline us to independence from him. Paul captures this in a New Testament sense in Ephesians 2. i put this on the back of your insert. When he writes to the, to the church in Ephesus, and by extension, I think, to, to the church in Indianapolis, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in Princess Bride words, dead, dead. All the way dead, non-responsive spiritually. What does he do? Verse 4, but God... "...being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." That's the present reality of those united to Christ. Verse 7, "...so that in the coming ages, the future reality, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." So we can't read Ezekiel 37 without reading it through Ephesians 2 because that is your story if you're in Christ. It means that you, friend, if in Christ, are a miracle. Now, when we say that in our culture, we tend to mean you're a miracle because you're a special flower and you're different, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that may be all true, but you're a miracle because if you're in Jesus, you were dead. You were dead, and now you are alive when you had no ability in yourself to bring life. Why? Because one from outside of us brought life inside of us, opened our eyes, and we said, Jesus is beautiful. Why did he do that? So that in the coming ages, he can show us the the riches of kindness toward us in Christ. This is why I think also we say repentance is a gift. Repentance is a grace. What is repentance? It's recognizing the remaining deadness in us and saying, look, oh, this is here. I don't want this. Lord, come and work right here. I have a bentness in myself that is, inclines me to, to, to self-sufficiency. That's not, going to be, that's not going to change until the resurrection of all things or the restoration of all things. Let's just stipulate that. We know that's true. So we can't be surprised when we find sin in ourselves. Let's recognize that sin and ask the Lord to come and work in it. That's what repentance is. And I would suggest that if we see repentance as discouraging and bad news, or as the Puritan said, if we see repentance as odious, it smells bad, that is because we are inclined to nurture this vision of life where we can sort of exist on our own independent from God. Because repentance highlights this reality where we need to be dependent on God, the very thing we're created for. So we don't want to shy away from repentance. That's why we confess our, fa- or our sin every week in, uh, in our work corporate gathering, just to keep the skids greased for that in our own life. Right? Verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. By the way, when we see the word prophesy, sometimes as Americans we think foretelling the future. That's sometimes what it means in the Scripture, but almost all other times it always means just like telling what's true, saying God's words. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So what he's saying is, Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these dry, dead, scattered bones. These non-responsive bones, I want you to declare my word and preach to them, okay? There is probably a preacher joke hidden in there somewhere about responsiveness of the congregation. Um, I don't necessarily feel that, but, uh, but here's what he's saying. Is, Since these are my words, my words coming through you, these are my words to those bones. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded, This is the toughest preaching gig ever. I'm preaching to a valley of dry bones, says Ezekiel. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So when Ezekiel spoke, when Ezekiel preached, something happened. It said there was a sound and a rattling. That's the sound. That, in Hebrew, there, that's the sound of an earthquake, a shaking. Now, maybe the bones rattle too. Like, we have this vision. Like, if you see a kid's cartoon, like, bones rattling with chains, you know, like, I don't know, Jacob Marley or something. That's, I don't know. It's pretty <laughs> cinematized. What's happened is there's this, the God's, when, mm, this is so good, uh, Ezekiel speaks God's word and God's voice itself shakes creation. And so what you have here is you have a prophet speaking the word of God and God's powerful word operating in that speaking so something happens. What happens? The bones begin to come together. The bones, so this disparate uh, group of bones being shaped together in the form of a skeleton, right, and many skeletons, and then a I don't know, apparently ligaments would have grown between the bones keeping together and then sinews on the bones and then the, the flesh, which is what they're in the word for muscle, would have come on top of the, the, the sinews and then it's covered with, uh, with skin. And Ezekiel is a priest, which meant he spent a lot of his days making animal sacrifices. He's very familiar with, sin, with uh, skin and muscle and sinews and bones, just in the opposite order, right? This is uh, being made from the inside out. And I'm sure this is an overwhelming vision for Ezekiel. Like, what is happening? I just preached, and look at all this stuff is happening. God's word went out, and things are being created. They had an appearance of life. There was a form of life, but it points out here that there was no life in them. There was no breath in them. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God: Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. Now, if you, I have uh, this Lecrae song in my head. He does the riff in Chris Tomlin's "Burning Light." Do you know that song? You should just go look it up on Spotify after the service is over. Lecrae has this great breakdown of this, and I cannot, I can hear his voice. um, Say to the four winds, breathe, O breath. So anyway, go to look that up. What is missed here in English is the word breath is the word spirit. In Hebrew, it's the word ruach, which means spirit. This is an Old Testament picture. When they come to the New Testament, this kind of power of God's spirit is the Holy Spirit of the living God. And the four winds communicates omnipotence and omnipresence, north, south, east, west, is coming from everywhere, this power, and it's meant to call to mind another place in Scripture where someone has the form of life and the appearance of life but no life and God breathes on them and they come to life, that is Genesis 2 when God has made Adam out of dust and there's no life and the Spirit who's hovering over the water comes and fills Adam and Adam comes to life. Right? What we have here is a picture of a recreation, a new creation. So what this is showing us here is that God does his work of bringing life to death, and he does it in two ways. One, he does it through his word. This is the sp- so what we have here, the word of God. And he does it through his spirit. His word working through his spirit. So we could say the Word of God is necessary but not sufficient in and of itself. There's a lot of people who can study the the Scripture and see great literary connections and have great seminary classes or university classes but not be born again because there's no spirit. Right? The word by itself can create a lot of good form. It can create good systems of ethics. It can even create maybe some good governments if you kind of shape it up in, in some ways. It can create good patterns of life. But in itself, without the work of the Spirit, it is simply words. Now, they're good words. They create a lot of form, but Scripture would say the word and the Spirit have to go together. So if you can remember when you came to Christ, you maybe heard several sermons before your eyes were open to the gospel. Why is that? Because the word was present, but not the spirit. When the word and the spirit combine, you're like, oh, Jesus. Right? That's what happens. So in, in sort of Christian religious communities, right, we can say we could there could be a community that is that is focused, focused, focused on the word, but ignores the spirit, the life-giving aspect of the word. And that could be a, a community that is very Precise, but very harsh. Very precise, but very harsh. Very cold. You could say there could be communities that are, that are really focused on the the, the life giving aspect of the spirit, but disconnected from the Word. And there might be a lot of vibrancy there, but it's weird. Like I just get off. The, it's, it's unrelated to what God actually says. And that could be like the the super fundamentalist version of uh, of countercultures. It could be the more progressive version that's just as led around by whatever the values de jour of the culture is, or it could be the uh, hyper charismatic version that's a lot of uh, a lot of expression, but not necessarily connected to what God has revealed. So we need together the word and the Spirit. Now, different traditions will break one way or the other. Frankly, our tradition really breaks hard toward we're, the Word and a little bit of the Spirit. We could use a little, a little more Spirit and the Word together. I think that would be, I'd be open to that. Um, that wasn't in my notes and I might edit that out of the sermon MP3. I'm not sure. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we need hold on to the Word with all of our life and hold on to the Spirit with all of our life and bring these things together in all of our life. Okay? Because that's what the Lord does. He brings life through his word and spirit. Now, think about this. This is so good. As participants in this work of redemption with him in the age of the spirit. What is being described here for us? Speaking to the breath. Okay. Just go with me for, just for a second. Using our words to speak to the spirit to ask him to do what he does, which is give life. This is called prayer. (laughs) We use our words to ask God to work, to do what he does. Speaking to the breath. One subcategory, at least, we could say, of speaking to the breath is prayer. That (laughs) gives God's people access to the most powerful force in the world. The word and the spirit. It's like Christians have this secret knowledge, this inside track to the most powerful force in the world. Robert Oppenheimer was the principal scientist on the development of the nuclear bomb during World War II, the Manhattan Project. And when it was tested in the desert, as they were watching from some miles away, so there was a group of about 20, and his his recounting was a couple people laughed nervously out loud when they saw it. how how devastating it was, a couple of people immediately began to weep, and most were silent, and he said, I I repeated to myself the words of the Hindu religious text, the Bhagavad Gita. I said to myself, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Because he saw we have unleashed a power on humanity that is unlike anything we've ever seen, has more capacity for destruction than anything we've ever seen. You know, and since then we either evolved or devolved our production of those. So the the nuclear warheads now are about sixty times as powerful as that one. And it changed the course of the world. It's changed, it, you know, the Cold War. It cha- it's changed the course of, of geopolitics in what for a, in one century, all of geopolitics, because now we have access to something that may consider to be the most powerful force that we can have. Now some would say, no, actually, politics is the most powerful force because it shapes entire people groups. Some people would say, oh no, it's economics because that has a force to shape people and as with politics, can lift people up. More people have been lifted out of poverty by free markets in the last 30 years than any other time in history. Totally know that, it's all good. That's Those are great forces. We could say, well, it's actually the force of personal persuasion because that's at the root of it all. Or maybe it's digital connectivity because now, never before have we been connected. Those are all powerful forces. One force, one power we've never been able to touch is something that can bring Dead things to life, and if we could, all those other powers would have to bow to it because all those that the, the extent of all those other powers is to bring death and destruction. But if that after that destruction, there could be life brought from death, and that would be a real power. If you're in Christ, that power by the Spirit is already resident in you. You've tasted a little bit of it. You've tasted it. Your tasting of it allows your eyes to be open to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You taste some now. More is coming. That power, guys, is resonant in us. And if prayer is giving us access to that power, wow, we should use that. There was a prayer meeting before church. Uh, Women praying. There's a prayer meeting on uh, Tuesday mornings at uh, Needham with the guys. We could just call them nuclear meetings if we wanted to, but that wouldn't be strong enough. This is the power. Now, I know people say, oh, that's silly Christian stuff. Okay, fine. You don't have to believe it. The God of the universe says, I make the presence of the future, the powers of the age to come, available to my people. And the way into it is word and prayer, word and spirit. So, the two just just real simple application questions here. One, who needs life in your life? Who in your life do you know? Whom you love? Right now, spiritually, is as the house of Israel was described in Ezekiel 37 dry bones. Here's a a radical proposition, and one you may already be engaging. Speak to the breath. Earnestly ask for God to work in this situation and open minds, and open hearts. Be available with the word of God as that makes itself available. And we keep praying. This is the power of the universe. Second question. What in your life, what in our life, needs life? What is dry and dusty? Where is life ebbing away? Some of you perhaps are in marriages that are functionally dry bones. Oh, it's instilled in the form of a marriage. But what you need is the fresh winds of the Spirit of God to blow into your life. How would we ever get that? It starts by speaking to the breath. We ask, Lord, I see, I see my sin, but I only see it in part. Show me more. Come breathe new life into this marriage. Breathe new life in this marriage and show me where I am problematic. Show me the the depth of my own death. Maybe it's simply our personal walk with Jesus is just dry and dusty. Lord, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Lead me to repentance and blow the fresh wind of your spirit into my life. Maybe it's your courage. Maybe it's your Generosity, maybe it's your fear, maybe it's your anxiety. I don't know what it is. We are all kind of all broken in our own ways, but I, but the solution—those are the solution pathways for all of it. And this end, this whole passage ends with an interpretation of this for Ezekiel, showing us that he does this for his glory and the good of his people. Verse eleven. Then he said to me, "Son of man." These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off, and they are right, as long as they are looking at themselves. Therefore, verse 12 prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So God's saying, I will do this, but they get back to the land, as Taylor preached a few weeks ago, and they're like, eh, this is not that great. This isn't, nobody's rising from their graves. What's going on here? What's going on here is the story's not over. I want to give just a one in, hermeneutic or Bible interpretation clue of, of understanding a lot of the Old Testament here. Last week or two weeks ago, we talked about prophetic foreshortening. Remember that? Anybody remember that phrase, prophetic foreshortening? Everybody commit that to memory and use it in their conversation. All right, I see that hand Uh, from a nine-year-old. Prophetic foreshortening is when uh, things that are far off in the Old Testament and things that are not as far off but still far off to them are brought together like a mountain range. And so we see the, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ as if they're the same thing because we're seeing it from so far off, like two mountains that are separated by a great distance. I want to just talk just for a second to help you read your Bible when it comes to the promises of the land, the land. He says here, I will restore you to your land. What does that mean? What does that mean? You have this theme of the promised land and God restoring his people to their land. It's all through the Old Testament. I want you to read your Old Testament. What does that mean? We'll have to step back and say, "What's what's the full scope of the story? What's the original promised land? And we say, oh, Israel. If you said that, you would be wrong. Israel's not the original promised land. Start back farther. Start in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. What's the original promised land? What's the original land promised to Adam and Eve? The whole earth. The whole earth, and their task was to take this little garden sanctuary called the Garden of Eden and extend its borders, and they have scope and reign over the whole earth to do that. That's the original call. But no, they say, we're going to be independent instead of dependent. They lose that. They're cast from the garden. And so uh, that promised land is lost to the people. And then God calls Abraham and says, one day, I'm going to lead your descendants into a land called the promised land, which is Israel, which we see by the New Testament was a placeholder for the whole earth, but it was just a, it was a sign, it was supposed to be a hyperlink, you click on it, and like, oh, it's everything, it's, it's the original promise. And so God brings, eventually brings the people of uh, Israel out of slavery and sends them into the promised land, and as the whole promised land was the earth with a, with a temple called the Garden of Eden in the middle of it, the, the, the new little promised land, Israel, was had a, a Jerusalem in the center, and the center of Jerusalem was a temple. And the, Israel, the promised land, was supposed to be to the world a picture of what a land could be like if God was at the center. And the people of Israel said, thank you, we will now live independently. No, thank you. Okay, all right. Again, they leave, they, they're exiled out of the promised land, and then God brings them back into this land as a sign that I'm not done with this story yet, and you're coming back to this land, but this land was never the destination it was always a sign pointing to the destination. And then the story unfolds, and Jesus comes on the scene, and it says Jesus tabernacles or temples or dwells among us. And then those trust we trust in him. We have reunion with Christ, and we begin to be called the temple of the living God in this earth. And then at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, part of it's on the back wall there. We see this picture of the city of Jerusalem with the temple coming down to the earth. It touches down and renews everything. So the original promised land, the whole earth, is the promised land again, and everything is made new. So when we see these Old Testament land promises like, I will bring you back to your land, coming back after exile is only just like a little, little shadow of it. It was pointed to the fullness, which is the fullness of everything, the renewal of all things. One day, friends, you will be raised from your graves. We will inherit this earth. We will be brought back into our land. This story from Ezekiel 37 is your story. It's my story. We are participants in this. When it says, I will raise you from your graves and bring you back to your land, he's talking about you. He's talking about us. He's talking about our, our Christian family that's gone before us and will come after us. It's a much bigger story than we think. It's a story we're swept up in. It's a massive story in which we taste a little bit now. And we should take those wins when we taste it. We see some victory over sin in our life. We have some conflict with a spouse, and we ask for forgiveness, and they forgive us. We get sideways with a friend, and we seek their forgiveness, and they forgive us. We have real fellowship. Those are good things. We, we know that we're tasting a little bit now, but it's only a foretaste of the coming reality that's coming with power. That future age to come is, is coming, and we taste it a little bit now. And it's all because there's grace outside of us that comes into us. Now, I'm going to give you the test. It's not a pop quiz, because I told you about it a few minutes ago. It's one question. It's one question only. You don't have to answer By raising your hand, (laughs) here's the question. Does grace come from inside of you or outside of you? Does it originate with us independently? Or does it originate outside of us with one on whom we're dependent who lives gladly and freely? Please don't answer that it originates from within us. (laughs) Um, It originates from outside. Part of the reason we come to the table is that week by week, we need that reality pressed on us. The grace flows from God to us. The table looks back, it looks around, and it looks forward. It looks back to the work Christ has done for us. It looks around to the power he has for us he graciously gives, and it looks forward to this time where we will have true fellowship with him forever. The powers of the age to come have started in the past. They continue now and will be brought fully into our life in the future. If you're in Christ by faith, if he has brought you from death to life, the table's for you, and we want you to come.